Hi, as is obvious from this accent and from the fact that you do know me, uh, I come from Scotland, so I'm going I'm to begin by just gently recapping what I said last week, so that will be the first half hour, and then I'm just going to tell you a story, another story of, of, uh, of my boyhood in Scotland, and then I'm going to try and unpack something that I said last week I was going to continue to unpack. So, last week I said if we uh, look at Pentecost and think that is what we would like for our church, we'd like a, a bit of that power, a bit of that you know, Holy Spirit falling on us the way that had happened then, then just be careful what we wish for. As students of the Bible, we study the Bible, don't just quote it. And that, that, that church was problematic. There were, there were forces in it that are not unlike the forces that are in our church. And so we've got to be mature about this and not just be eager for a sort of a very puerile idea of God to fall on us as if God is at our behest and is like that. I said that um, our charismatic friends in the, in the more radical bits of the Christian church are maybe a wee bit too much interested in, in the power of the Holy Spirit all the time in, in their books and in their, in their movements and maybe not as interested as I, as I would want them to be in the love, the power of love that's supposed to be at the heart of what they're doing. I said that the Holy Spirit was given by Jesus, didn't come, didn't come on his own, he arrived with the breath of Jesus, with the presence of Jesus, and I wanted us to be experiencing the Holy Spirit in the presence of Jesus. And the final thing I said was that the, when you look at the Holy Spirit throughout the whole of the book of Acts, what happens is he, she, it, whatever the way you want to describe the Holy Spirit, because let's face it, this is God, it's beyond our categories, um, only falls on community. He resides in people, he fills people, but she falls on communities. So um, I need to, need to back that up. And I wanted to say at the end of the last time that we needed to be, therefore, if we wanted the Holy Spirit to fall on us, we needed to be a community, not that is worthy of the Holy Spirit, because that's impossible. The, the first church that the Holy Spirit fell on was not worthy of, of him and couldn't, couldn't back that up and made lots of mistakes. We can't do that. That's not the mistake we want to make. We want to be a church that is longing for that. That's the right aspect to be in. So the Holy Spirit only falls on communities. We know that in, in John's gospel, Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to a group of people, to his disciples. We know that in, in Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell on a, a whole group of them that were there at the festival and wonderful things happened. We know that when the church was persecuted and Philip dashed off to Samaria, and he met a lot of Samaritans who were not the most acceptable people to the Jews, and he converted them to Christianity. And Peter and John came down from Jerusalem to see what was going on with these less than desirable people, realized they'd become Christians, prayed for them, and as, he, as they prayed for them and laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit fell on the whole group. We know that Paul was a missionary par excellence, and he went and created Christians all over the place. And he was in, he was in Ephesus, and a whole bunch of Christians were there, and he said, so how's it going with the Holy Spirit? And they said, holy who? We've never heard of the Holy Spirit. And he's like, oh, for goodness sake, what baptism did you get? So we got John's baptism. He said, no, that's the wrong one. That's just for being repentant. You need to be baptized into the name of Jesus. And so he baptizes them in the name of Jesus, lays hands on them, and the Holy Spirit falls on the whole crowd. And they begin to, to prophesy and do all sorts of stuff in power. The Holy Spirit falls on groups. The Jerusalem church had a problem with about whether this was going to go to the Jews or whether this was going to go to everybody. And God had to really stamp his authority on that situation. So he gave Peter, the leader of that church, a triple vision. If God does something three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. If he does something three times, it's because he means it. 
So Peter saw this, this vision. He fell into a dream and he, he saw this vision of the sheep being laid down from heaven. God showed it to him three times and said, don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. And then God thought, oh, never mind the vision stuff. Peter, there's some people downstairs. I've sent them. When they, when they ask you, just go with them. Immediately, God said. So God just cut the chase and said, just go with them. And Peter goes downstairs and he finds a couple of people are waiting for him. And they know that he's there and they say that God has told them. And they want to take him to a centurion's house. Now, for goodness sake, doesn't it get much worse if you're a first century Jew? Not only are you going to be asked to go to a Gentile's house, but you're going to ask to go to the, a centurion. The force that is oppressing your people wants to talk to you. It's not going to go well. But he goes and he finds that in Cornelius' house, not only is a Roman centurion there, he's brought his whole household. The place is just littered with just wall-to-wall Gentiles. And this is not good news for a man who spent almost his whole life avoiding these people. But God has told him very clearly this is what he needs to do. So he goes in and he says, what do you need? And then they tell him this remarkable story about how God has appeared to them and sent for him. And they're waiting on him to tell them what they need. And he goes, well, I suppose I'll need to do another Pentecost. So he gets up and he starts doing a sermon like he did at the first the first time and the Holy Spirit goes ah, enough of that son and just and just it doesn't get a chance to finish the Holy Spirit falls on everybody there and they all become Christians and and it causes Peter no end of trouble when he gets home that he's made Christians out of these unacceptable people but this is this is how God wanted to rule the Holy Spirit falls on community what kind of community my favorite film is the one of my favorite films is the Princess Bride if you know it there's a character in it um who keeps, who keeps having his plans dashed. He's kidnapped the princess and he keeps having his plans dashed. And every time his plans are dashed, he says, inconceivable. And eventually one of the other characters in the film says to him, you keep using that word. I'm not sure it means what you think it means. <laughs> and what I want to say to Christians sometimes is we keep using the word community almost like a talisman. What we want is community. We want to be a community. We need to, need to bless the community. But do we really know what the word actually means because it's considered a universally positive panacea that we just throw around and therefore we're going to be doing good if we're doing community. So the Christians who had the Holy Spirit fall on them formed themselves into communities but the communities that they would understand would have been on Jesus model. So I want to take a, I want to take a little look at Jesus before we talk about how we long for the Holy Spirit to fall. Jesus both made and unmade community. He was a complex guy. Jesus grew up in a family. One of the, one of the, the, the principal features of Christian churches is this, this, this family. You can't touch family. Family is the right place to understand God and all these sorts of stuff. Jesus grew up in a family. He grew up in a, in a working class family. It was a teenage pregnancy. They don't call him the, the son of Joseph very often. They often call him the son of Mary and we all know why. And we know that that family was poor because the offering they gave in the temple was a, was a poor person's offering. And that his father was artisanal, that his father didn't survive into his adulthood, that he loved his mother and even in his own death, he cared for her. We know about all of this. So Jesus was sort of raised in a, in a pretty good family, actually. And that's, for, that's very good. And Jesus validated the idea that the family is where we learn community. But Jesus set limits on family. We were telling the young people at the church weekend, the only story we have of Jesus' teenage years is when he was 12, 13 on the cusp of manhood uh, and he goes, to the, he goes to the festival and he, he's kind of, right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. He manages to create a scenario where he can stay at the festival when everybody else has gone home. 
And he shoplifts some time at the university is basically what he does. He, a carpenter's son, goes to the temple and starts learning from the, learning from the teachers. And they're amazed by him. They're amazed by what he's got to say. And he spends three days just loving this, just loving this. Meanwhile, his parents are frantically searching all over the place for him. And they find him and they look at him and they say, son, what do you think you're doing? Do you have no idea how worried we are? And Jesus doesn't apologize. In fact, he becomes quite the huffy teenager and he says, if you knew me better, you'd already know where I am. You'd have known that you'd have found me in my father's house. And that's an idiom from the time to come into your father's house in Jesus' world would be to become a carpenter. And Jesus has said, no, you don't understand my identity. You don't understand who I am. This is my father's house. This is what I'm going to be. This is what I'm going to do. And that's more important than you're searching for me for three days. And then he goes home and he obeys them and it's very lovely and stuff. But he set limits on what the family could do. When he was a full-grown man, his family realized the trajectory that he was on. They realized that this was not going to go well. Previous messiahs had been murdered. It seemed very unlikely, given how unpopular Jesus was, that he was going to survive. And so the family, his brothers and his mother, decide to go and take control of him. His brothers don't really believe he is who he is anyway. That's in the text. We see that. So they march up, but they can't get in because it's so crowded and stuff. And then I'm imagining Mary says, says, picks some lackey and says, hey, you, go and tell Jesus his mum's here. And this guy kind of goes through, and maybe Jesus is in the middle of one of his best parables or whatever, and somebody goes, hey, Jesus, your mum's outside. You know, it's this, this kind of thing about, you know, your mother and brother are just outside. And, they, and the, the assumption, the cultural assumption, is that he will honor them. And he says, no, they're not. Here's my mother, here's my brother, here's my sister. The people who do the will of God are my mother, my brother, and my sister. And he rejects the authority of his family over him. Jesus makes and unmakes community. He makes it on his terms, and that's complex for us. Jesus had a relationship with the cognoscenti. We always think that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law were the baddies in this scenario, because ultimately they were the ones who arranged his killing. But they weren't always the baddies. Um, Jesus uh, publicly complimented Pharisees who would agree with him. So he was talking to one of, a teacher of law one time. teacher of law heard what he said, said something on top of it. And Jesus went, well done, son. You're, you're not far from the kingdom. Complimented him in public. Jesus went to Pharisees' houses for dinner. There's a couple of recorded occasions when he went to the Pharisees' houses. If, he was, if they were so horrible, he was so um, against them. Why did he do that? He made community with them. He was happy to do it. Um, Jairus and Jairus' wife came to get Jesus when their daughter was ill because they knew he was, was going to be the answer. Uh, and he went with them. And, he, and obviously he blessed them in a rather big way if you know the story. But then he said to them, don't, don't tell anybody. This, is, this was just for you. He loved those people. When eventually it all went south and, and he got murdered, the, what the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders, the Herodians, the, the, the teachers of the law had wanted was to, they wanted to give him a dishonorable death. They wanted to consign him to a grave with the wicked. They wanted to say, this is what happens to people who take, who take the authority he's taken illegitimately, who put themselves in the place of God. What happens to them is they get brutally murdered and then they die in a pauper's grave somewhere and that's, that's the end of them because they're rubbish to God. That's what God does to them. He discards them. Unfortunately for them, two of their number, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, decided to break with the power structures of the powerful group that they were in take the body of Jesus and to honor it in its burial. 
putting in a new tomb, the tomb of a wealthy person. He was consigned to grave with the rich. They would not let the Son of Man see a horrible burial, a horrible end. They gave him something better. They gave him something that he was worth. That, those are Pharisees. Those aren't those. But of course, when Jesus had dinner with these people, what usually happened was the, uh, the occasional prostitute or the occasional woman of ill repute would walk in and would be weeping at his feet and everybody would be going, who's that disgusting woman? What's, why is he even letting her touch him? Does he, if he was a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman is touching him, not kind of person we want here. And Jesus had to say to them, do you know why you think what you're thinking? There's no love here. I can't feel it except that it's touching my feet. When Jesus wanted to show his disciples the full extent of his love, he copied this woman. He humbled himself and he washed their feet just as she had done for him. So he indicted the cognoscenti as well. Jesus, we were telling the children, had, had this kind of male band of followers, right? And they were very, they were very sort of power crazed slightly. And the they didn't want the women and the, and the children to be involved. Jesus, Jesus validated these people. He validated the idea that, 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 that he invented male bonding. <laughs> these 12 guys wandering around with him. And he took them from just being lots of young guys that he called into his group. He took them through trials and tribulations. He took them on journeys. He taught them all about God. He took them up and down mountains. He took them over, over lakes and overseas. He built this community out of them. And he got them into this really, really intimate place where a semi-naked Jesus touches them, washes them, and they're not best comfortable with that. And he says, no, this is male bonding. This is what it's really like. But when it comes to them saying, get the babies out of here. Why are you women bothering this? This is the son of God. Why are you bothering him? Go away. Jesus is indignant with them. and says, don't, don't prevent them. What do you think you're playing at? Let the children come to me. Let the women come to me. And Jesus puts his hands on the babies and he blesses them. He talks to the women. And he says, it's a diversity gig, boys. Women and children are welcome. What do you think you're playing at? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not part of the patriarchy. That's not how it works. My disciples will be made, will be made up of all kinds of people. So it's, so it's lovely stuff. Jesus blesses, makes community with, embraces pretty much the whole world. So when he, when he is at the height of his popularity, there are thousands of people who come. And because they haven't got anywhere for, you know, they haven't got the Rico Arena um, they're outside, they're out in the wilderness and there's thousands of people listening to him and, he, and, and they stay for a couple of days because they're so enthralled by him and then he says I tell you what, it's been a long time maybe we need to get some dinner on and the disciples are like, too right, send them away Jesus, send them away and Jesus says, no, don't send them away bring them into community feed them and the disciples are like, Jesus have you got any idea how difficult that would be? and Jesus goes, yes maybe just with his eyes Sets them all down. We always go on about the Last Supper in Christianity. What about the First Supper? What about these thousands of people that Jesus feeds and embraces and brings into community? And he, he, he says, this is what it's going to be like. And I haven't got time to tell you what he's saying. But if, the, if someone from God like Moses or someone from God like God himself had assembled thousands of people in the wilderness and then fed them with bread from heaven, he'd be saying something very significant about what he's intending to do to liberate them, to release them, to take them into the promised land, to go with them. Jesus is rocking that with them the whole time, giving them the symbolism. And they love it. Jesus made community. So there was another event where the people weren't actually Jews, which kind of bothered the disciples. They were saying, 
Um, they didn't, it was Jesus who had to say, shall we feed these people? Because the disciples were a bit uncomfortable. This, this thing never went away for them. Jesus included them all. But if you read John's gospel, what happens is that Jesus then unmakes that community. So on another very, a very similar occasion, they all come, hey, Jesus, they all come rushing in. And, and Jesus says, listen, I'm going to tell you the truth. The reason you've come here is not because of me and who I am. You've come here because you, you, yesterday you had your bread, you ate your fill, and today you're hoping for another free meal. And that's not how it's going to work. That's not what this is for. Read it in John's Gospel. And Jesus, Jesus indicts them and says, only those that God calls to me can come to me. You need to start feeding on me. Stop feeding on bread that will perish. Feed on the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. Moses gave you bread from heaven. I am bread from heaven. Come and feed on me. And they're like, why can't he feed on you? You're a man. It's like, no, you don't understand. Do you not understand what I'm saying? Unless God draws you, unless God calls you, you can't be in community with me. And you need to eat my flesh. And they're going, we can't eat your flesh. This is a really bizarre thing that you're saying. And then they get upset with him and they say, oh, this, who's this guy? It's just Joseph's son. He's no anybody. And Jesus says, does this offend you? Shall I, go, shall I go back to where I came from? Only those who come to me are welcome, really. And it says, many disciples deserted him on that day. He preached a sermon that made them go away. He unmade community. Because with Jesus, it's complex. You don't just get what you want. He wouldn't let his family control him. He wouldn't let his disciples set a monoculture of male dominance. He wouldn't let the cognoscenti assimilate him into their model, invite him to dinner, ingratiate him, move him on to the other thing. He wouldn't let the, the wild community that he'd created ruin what he was trying to do. He made community, sure, but he unmade it as well. It's a complex gig. The people upon whom the Holy Spirit fell knew this. They understood this about him. They'd experienced this from him. And the communities they made, therefore, had to be made in that image. The community that we make has to be made in the image of Jesus. It can't be made in the image of our family. It can't be made in the image of our clever, working, uh, clever middle-class theology. It can't be made in, into the image of um, anything that is not diverse enough, not inclusive enough. It can't be, made into, can't be made into the image of anything that is assimilated into our society. It needs to be made in his image. And that is tough. I mean, that is difficult. We've been struggling for this for 2,000 years. It's really tough. And we will not get it done. We cannot be a community that is worthy of that. It will never happen. And if we keep straining in our orthodoxy to say this is, this is, this is the right thing and when it's like this with these songs and these people and this theology and all this stuff, then it will be, the, it's, it's never going to happen. Never in the history of the church has this happened. And if the charismatics keep straining, saying, oh, no, no, what you want is tongues and Holy Spirit and fire and prophecy and, and all sorts of, and, and of course there'll be collateral damage, but we don't care. I care. I care. I want the Holy Spirit to fall on this church like a lead weight, but I don't want it to destroy anybody. I care. But the imperative of the Holy Spirit to fall on a Christian community is a given in the Bible. It is there. Every time the, the disciples make a community, they go, they bless them, they put their hands on them, the Holy Spirit falls. That's what happens. It's, not, it's a non-negotiable of the kingdom. Jesus made it a non-negotiable. So what are we going to do? We can't make the community. That's not going to work. So what we have to do is we have to long for it. That's what God wants. God wants us to long 
Longing is an old-fashioned emotion. It's a deep, sacred idea. It has a sense in which it goes for a, a long time. That's why it's called longing. But the difficulty with it is that trying to describe longing is like trying to describe love. It's not going to be very easy. Longing is experienced. It isn't explained. Here's a piece of longing for a, a church that I used to go to. It's called I Can't Sing. And if, as is likely with me, this results in emotion, I'm sorry, I can't control my emotions. If I could control my emotions, they wouldn't be there. <laughs> okay? So let's just hope I get through and it's all fine. And if I don't, don't be embarrassed because it just is what it is. This is called I Can't Sing. I can't sing, which is a shame, we all agree, some more than others, if they are singing next to me. There seems a sad confusion there, as if the fact that you can sing and I cannot is not God-given. I can't sing, but circumstance and desire both conspire to deepen my dismay because I long to sing, just like you. I want the tunes that you make so naturally to be attributed to me. It's not as if I'm deluded, lost, or malcontent to nefariously defame the perfect voice of grace or with more effort would not throw off your tune. I can't sing. And you know it. And we have a little joke, you and I. Nothing malicious, but it eases your pain. You who did not, that I'm aware of, graft for, purchase, or practice your voice. You whom God has blessed can at least laugh with me. And that's a passing harmony for you. I can't sing. And that's a shame, I'd agree, given the songs I've written. When a song I want to sing is a is a child from my arms who will never come. When a song I want to sing is a lover for my own who will never warm my breast, who will never dent my bed. When a percussion in my head is not your gentle stealth of stable mental health, but the omnipresent rattle of the pills that still my brain. That's a backbeat of obsession and searing mental pain. That's a hymn sheet for the lost. And if you're singing next to me, my source of confusion is the song you sing so naturally. It's my song of exclusion. I can't sing. And I know it. But in my head, won't you see, there's a choir. Longing can only be experienced. It can't be described. It can only be experienced. And we're not the first. God longed before we longed. When God encountered the human race, he wanted to say to them, where are you? I'm looking for you. I can't find you. Who are these people obsessed with evil? They're not who I made. And he took all this pain and he, and he created, he, he could have just destroyed them and he nearly did. And then he thought, no, I'm going to try and rescue this thing. And he built himself at great cost, this prospectus that goes all the way from Noah to Abraham, where he tries to build the people who will be worthy of him. And it never, never, never works for him. And he still endures and he takes the pain of it. And you'd think that God would just be fed up in the end and say, I'm not going to do this anymore. 
God longs. God longs. He doesn't long in the law. He doesn't long in theology. He doesn't long in orthodoxy. He longs in prophecy. He longs in poetry. He longs in song. He longs in things that can not be described. They can only be experienced. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me and my compassion is all aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, for I am God. I'm not a man. The Holy One among you, I will not come in wrath. Much as it pains me, I will not come in wrath. Shout for joy, O heavens, rejoice, O earth, burst into song, O mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted one. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has borne? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I love the idea that God, when he's trying to get his point across as to how much he longs for us, pictures himself as a breastfeeding woman and says, imagine that. Imagine the viscerality of that. That's how I feel about you. That's what I'm feeling when I look at you. God longs doesn't just command. He longs for community with us. Jesus longs. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, (laughs) you who kill the prophets and stone those who who are sent to you. If only you had known how often I have longed to gather your chicks as a mother hen gathers them under her wings, but you are not willing You did not recognize the day of your visitation and your house is left to you desolate until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's God longing again. Here's God using another maternal, motherly, protective image. The chicks are gathered under the the, the mother's wings because the barnyard's on fire. And though the mother dies, the chicks might live. This is a powerful image, a powerful image of maternal power. God says, I long for you. I long for you. So the question becomes, do we long for him? Not just in our songs and our occasional prayers. Do, do, we, do we long like that? Is, that? is that what we are like? The Holy Spirit fell. For those of you astute Bible students will realize I missed one of the fallings of the Holy Spirit in Acts out of my talk there. I told you about Philip and I told you about other things, but I'm going to tell you this one. This is just after Pentecost. Peter and uh, James, Peter and John, Peter and John have healed somebody and everybody's gone, how did you do that? And they said, we did it with Jesus. And then the Sanhedrin and all these people go, can you just shut up and stop using that name, please? That person is, is not available here. Thank you. And they said, well, we're not going to. Who do you think we should obey, God, are you? Jesus made that man well. Jesus made that man well, though you killed him. And we are the community of Jesus, and we're going to carry on doing what we're doing. And they warned them, and they threatened them, and they sent them away. And when they came back to the, the, the little gathering in the Jerusalem church, they said this, on their release, Acts 4, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. 
when he heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. This is a prayer of the church. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord, against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did that, did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand and heal. Perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Jesus. That's what we want to be about. And after they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. And they are personally responsible for the fact that you're sitting here. They longed. And the Holy Spirit was already reciprocating. The Holy Spirit was already there waiting to shake the room. For what? For the name of Jesus. For what? for the community of Jesus, the complex community. So we need to learn to long like that. And I don't know how we would do it, but I'm willing to give it a try. We need to learn to long like that. If we long, the Holy Spirit will reciprocate. If we build a community, let's build a community that Jesus wants us to build, which is more complex than the models that we've got of, of family and middle-class theology and various other things. It's much, much dirtier and more difficult. And if the Holy Spirit's going to come, let him come. Let us long together. And then see what happens. Whatever happens is going to be messy. Because it was then. Why wouldn't it be now? Stop trying to impose order onto your God. He doesn't work like that. He longs and he longs and he longs. And he's waiting for us to long too. God bless you.